tonight we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Now, as I was, I knew I was preaching this for a good week or two tonight because I knew Pastor Christian was going to be out of town. And I had a whole nother message on my heart. But as the Lord began to work a few last weekend, to be exact, we were in uh, Pigeon Forge. Our college group went to Single Vision. While we were there, our very first message we heard was from pastor or preacher Kenny Baldwin. I don't know if he's a doctor or not, but his name's Kenny Baldwin. And he was preaching, and the title of his message was Jesus Changes Everything. And he preached it out of Philippians 3. Well, as I was sitting there, me and one of my friends from college, uh, Isaiah Osborne, he sat right beside me. And it's funny because when I was back at Southeastern, we had a devotional group. He was a part of that group. And whenever we read through Philippians, me and him both were like, we love Philippians 3. And so we hadn't seen each other in a while. The first time we were together, we listened to a sermon about Philippians 3. So we were just like, dude, this is awesome. We were freaking out, we, you know, over a message, praise the Lord, I guess. But we were just, we were, we were like, wow, this is awesome. Like we hadn't seen each other in a while. And then once you look at the, work, the Lord work, like now we're hearing Philippians 3. And it actually turned out that that was what I ended up preaching my senior sermon on, which is this sermon. But as I was preparing, I really thought I was going to preach about James 2, which talks about faith and works and how actually our faith should produce works. And I'm not going to preach it because I felt like the Lord led me back to Philippians 3 because all week, really and truthfully, from last Friday when I heard that Thursday, when I heard that message, I had just wrestled with the fact that Jesus truly does change everything. Whenever we allow him to work in our life, it is just amazing to see how Jesus just works. And we see in Philippians 3, specifically in verses 1 through 14, the, basically the transformation of Paul. And as we go into this, I'm reminded of a story. This past January, um, me and Olivia and uh, Reagan and Cal, some of our other, Bailey T was there, and Leanna, we all went to um, Passion which is a conference for young adults. We went there in January. While we were there, we heard from uh, one of the speakers. His name was Tim Tebow. Many of us know Tim Tebow, like the, one of the greatest college quarterbacks. He was absolute. He flopped in the NFL. But he was telling us about a time when he was in the NFL. You see, Tim Tebow had great accolades in college, but he had actually just ended up, he was now a Patriot. And if we think of the Patriots and we think of the quarterbacks, we don't think of Tim Tebow. We think of Tom Brady. So Tim Tebow is there now with Tom Brady um, and Tom Brady, Tim Tebow on the same team and their coach is Bill Belichick. Well, Tim Tebow, as soon as he gets to where he's on the Patriots, coach Bill Belichick, one of the arguably, I guess people would say one of the greatest coaches, um, he, got, he pulls Tim Tebow aside and he's like, look, man, he's like, I want you to know your role in this team. OK, you are important, but you are not the star. You are not the quarterback, so you're not going to take Tom Brady's position. Don't even think that's why you're here. You're here to make our defense better. That is your role. If you have opportunities to become famous or whatever, that's not you. We don't want you causing any division between, you know, our Patriots fans and like Pat, uh, say Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady. Like, you do not need to come in here and cause some strife and division. That is not why you're here. We want you here to be uh, a backup quarterback that makes our defense better. He's like, okay, cool. Got it. Well... A few weeks go by, Tim Tebow gets a call from this people that want him to go in and basically say one line and make a million dollars for a commercial. Okay, so he's like, oh, man, that's awesome. His his uh, agent tells him about it. He's getting ready. And the agent's like, so what do you want to do the commercial? And Tim Tebow's like, well, I, I need to call coach. And he's like, why are you going to call the coach? He's like, this is a one million dollar commercial for you to say like five words 
and then you're done. Like, that's all you got to do. And he's like, yeah, but I, I just need to call coach. So he calls the coach. He calls coach Bill Belichick. And he's telling him the whole story. He's like, you know, I've, I've got this opportunity to do a commercial. And, you know, I, I want to do it, whatever. And can I do it? And coach Bill Belichick, he tells me, he's like, you know, Tim, he's like, I really don't want you to do the commercial. He's like, because I don't want you, basically, well, he told him, like, your role is not to be that guy on our team. That's Tom Brady. So I don't want you to cause any division. And so Tim Tebow is like, all right, well, I guess I won't do the commercial. So he calls his agent back, tells his agent, we're not going to do the commercial. His agent, as I would assume any agent would be, was like, are you crazy? It's a million dollars for you to say five words, and then, like, you don't even have to play in the NFL anymore. And then now, as I look at that story, I'm thinking, oh, Mr. Chance Howard, and I don't know if y'all are any different than me, I would have been like, let's do the commercial. We're going to get this million dollars, and then it, I'm not, I mean, not going to take Tom Brady's spot. Well, I'm not going to really lose anything. But Tim Tebow realized that it was worth it for him to not do that commercial. When a million dollars or not do the commercial and stay the backup quarterback, Tim Tebow realized it was worth it. And I realize now that living a life for Jesus is worth it. But when I was in high school, I heard this one of my friends, I was at his, his house. He knew that I was a Christian and he looked at me and he said, Chance, why don't you do all this stuff? Now, keep in mind, I really wasn't that great of a Christian in high school. I knew how to walk the, you know, how I could make it look like a Christian, but really didn't, wasn't changed by Jesus. So I wasn't like the epitome of a Christian, but I didn't really go to all these parties and stuff. And he looked at me and he said, is it really worth it to live a life for Jesus? He says, is it really worth it to be a Christian? And at that moment, because I wasn't truly changed by Jesus, I didn't know how to respond. I remember I was literally sitting on the side wall. He was on the bed. I was sitting on the wall watching him play a game. And he looked at me and he, out of the blue, really, like wasn't even expected. He said, is it really worth it to follow Jesus? And I look back now, if I'm honest with you, and I realize that I have missed a golden opportunity in that one of my friend's lives to tell him about Jesus. But because I was truly not changed by Jesus, I did not have a backbone to stand on. And tonight I want to ask you the exact same question he asked me. Is it worth it to you to follow Jesus? Not just to say you know Jesus, but to truly follow him. And tonight I want to look at Paul's transformation and how he views living a life for Jesus and then apply it to us, read the scripture, apply it, and we're going to go home and you can go get some dinner, whatever you got to do. But we're going to do that. Before we do that, I want to pray and just ask the Lord to be with us tonight. Father, Lord, I love you and I thank you so much for who you are. And I'm reminded that you truly do change everything, Lord. So help me tonight to preach your word and your truth boldly and then apply it to our lives and just allow you to work tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Philippians 3, I'm going to read the first 14 verses. I know you're like, man, Chance, that's a lot. But I really believe that we just need to get the whole grasp of this and realize that following Jesus truly is worth it. So verse 1, it says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you, to indeed is not grievous. But for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteous, which is the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me? Those I counted loss for Christ." 
Yet doubtless and I count all things before the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteous, which is of the law, but that which is of, through the faith of Christ, the righteous which is God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, if by any means that I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I have already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And tonight, from these 14 verses, I believe that Paul shows us through his almost miniature testimony we see here that following Jesus is worth it. And there are three reasons why following Jesus is worth it. The first one I see is that Paul tells us our past truly is worth nothing. Now, I can think of my past and I can look at how I've had maybe some good times, some bad times, some things that I would say maybe are not my fault, but I'm having to deal with consequences for, or maybe some areas where I could really get boastful and be like, yeah, I've really figured this out and I've got it figured out. But the truth is my past and your past in the grand scheme of things really is just the past. And Paul shows us from his past that it is worth nothing because hearing Paul talk about his past, we have to understand who Paul was in his past. We know that Paul, before the road to Damascus, was Saul. And we see now that Saul was a very popular Jew. But he says that those things that were gained to me in verse 7, he counts it all for loss. But what were those things that were gained to Paul and we see Saul? Well, verses 4 through 7 tell us a lot about Paul before his relationship with Jesus. It says that he was uh, he had confidence in his flesh. And basically he's saying like, hey, you think you got confidence? Well, let me tell you about all my accolades and show you that if anybody could have some confidence in the flesh, it's going to be me. He says that first he had a relationship to the nation. His Paul's human heritage being from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew. He was basically a Pharisee. He tells us that his relationship to the nation. Well, he had that figured out because his human heritage was one of prestige. If there were a test, my man Paul or Saul would have passed it with flying colors. If we had a little checkbox for all the important reasons that Jews would have considered Paul, you know, top tier. He hit every single one of those boxes. Now we can think about it now. Let's try to make it modern day. We can look at maybe those really popular people, the ones that seem to have thousands of followers on Instagram, or maybe the ones that if they ever were to run for mayor, we all know that they would get it easily because just everybody knows who they are. And they've just got such a great you know, relationship to the community or the county. Man, whenever we look at them, we're like, yeah, they really got it figured out. Paul could have said the same thing, but yet he says that, you know, those things that you would count good for me, I count them as nothing. He had a relationship to the nation. Secondly, we see that Paul had a relationship to the law. And in the Old Testament, we can realize how important the law truly is. He said to the Jew of that day or to the Jew of that day, what Paul was writing to, the highest place of honor was a Pharisee. And if anybody was going to go to heaven, it was going to be a Pharisee. Well, Paul or Saul was like the top tier Pharisee. He actually was present at the first um, martyr. What was it? Stephen? Yeah, at the martyr of Stephen. Paul was there. He was the one that was there. He witnessed it and he was a part of it. Paul was one of the top drawer Pharisees. So he had that going for him. He had a relationship to the nation. He had a relationship to the law. And lastly, being the Pharisee, being present at that, he had a relationship to Israel's enemies. 
But Warren Wearsby, he said this. He said, Paul is like an auditor who opens the book to see what wealth he has, but finds that he is absolutely bankrupt. You see, what Paul formerly saw as achievement or as accolades, he now acknowledged to have been a failure. What he would have formerly acknowledged as worthless, he now recognizes as the only achievement worth pursuing, which is Christ and the personal knowledge of knowing Christ and his resurrection. And I'm reminded here that following Jesus is worth it because our past is worth nothing. You see, when we know Jesus and he becomes real to us, yes, our past, we're going to remember it because we can't just magically forget. That's not how things work. But in the mind of the blood of Jesus that washes over it, it's worth nothing. So what does that mean? Well, let's say, and I'll just make this personal for me. I grew, if some of you might not know this. I grew up in a home without a dad, okay? Now, I have my grandpa who was there, very much a father figure, but there are some things in my life that because I grew up without my dad around and presently, I can say I struggle with, and I didn't really realize it until now, and there's things that I'm really, really realizing now. But I could look at that and be like, man, growing up without a dad, if you look at statistics, man, I should be in jail, possibly shouldn't have graduated high school. There's so much that's going on. But I look at that, and I could let that weigh me down. Or maybe for you, it's realizing that, man, I really did something wrong a few years ago. I might have stolen from my job or I might have made a might have gone to jail. Who knows? I don't know what it is for you. And you can look at that and that could really weigh you down. But the truth is the blood of Jesus forgives you for that, washes it clean. And truthfully, your past is worth nothing in the grand scheme of the fact that Jesus Christ died for you while we were yet sinners. He still loved us, still died for us, and we should not hold on to the past as a way that it weighs us down, but rather look at it as a way of thankfulness that despite all of that, all my evil doings, all my wrong, all my sin, whether I was responsible for what happened to me or what I did to others is forgiven by the blood of Christ Jesus. So we look at it from maybe the negative side, like, man, that weighs me down. But then we could also maybe in our past have some pride or maybe some accolades or some time where we've done some things that are really good. Or maybe for me, I I like making things personal. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. I like to be very open and transparent. I think I want to tell you about how Jesus worked in my life because I don't want to talk about other people because that's not real to me. But for me, you know, I could hold on to the fact that I was able to go play the possibility of going play baseball in college and let that be like, well, yeah, maybe I didn't have something bad happen to me, but I can walk around really boastfully like I've got this life figured out. But truthfully, the bad, just as much as the good, doesn't really matter whenever we look at the blood of Jesus. You know, we can have our pride or we can have these pits where we find ourselves really low, but it's all in the past. And it's not really got an effect in the future or right now because the blood of Jesus washes that away. You see, Jesus changes everything about our past. And we see Saul, or now Paul, talking about his past, how he could boast in everything about his past, yet it was worth nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because our past does not get us into heaven just as much as our future doesn't, but the blood of Jesus. And Paul realized all this stuff that he counted worthy in his life meant absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of any of it. So first, leaving for Jesus is worth it. Why? Because, well, our past isn't worth it. So what is? Jesus is. But then we get to our second point, which says that our present demands commitment. See, now we go to verse 13. It says, Brethren, I count not myself to apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind or the past and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Now, I've oftentimes heard it that the Christian life is a race and we press towards and we see here that we, we kind of push to that mark. And But I, I find it really interesting, the wording that we see here with Paul. He says, 
Brethren, I count not myself to apprehended, but this one. It says the word one. Not many. Okay, so what is this one thing that Paul tells us that he does? Forgets those things which are behind and reaches forth unto those things which are before. And we see that Paul tells us, man, there's so many things he could have told us, but there's one thing he tells us, and that the importance of knowing Christ. And it's very interesting to me that Paul literally could have said just about anything, but he mentions one thing, and that is a devotion to knowing Jesus Christ. Now, as I was studying this message and kind of trying to plan it out, I tried to think about a time where I focused on one thing, you know, one thing. And I remember my mom's going to find this story funny because we joke about it all the time. But during my time when I was in high school, I really wanted to go play baseball in college. That was like my goal. And I remember like when I was a sophomore in high school, it might have been a junior. I went to this baseball like training camp trying to, you know, get like people to notice me, whatever. And so while I was there, one of the coaches, he was like, all right, guys, let's huddle up. I want to give you some advice. And so he was going through, you know, these tips about how to get noticed, whatever, yada, yada. And one of the things he said was, is he says, you know, usually players, whenever they're in high school, they try to get really good at everything. So if somebody wants to be a really good hitter, a good pitcher, a good first baseman, they want to be good at it all. He said, but what I've realized as I've tried to coach people is tell, and I tell them, I was like, find that one thing that you are best at. And then don't just be average at everything, but be really, really good at that. So for example, whenever you think of like people that play baseball in the majors, usually if somebody's a pitcher, they're not, unless they're an athlete like Shohei Atani, they're only going to be a pitcher and they're not going to be a really good pitcher and a really good hitter. It's usually only one. It's kind of the same idea Paul's saying here. He's like, there's one thing you need to do, you can do, and that's know Christ. Because Paul realizes that knowing Christ, instead of just saying you know him, but rather knowing him, it's almost like that's the first step and then everything else comes with that. So I can say, man, I know Christ and then not read my Bible. Or I can say I know Christ and not have a personal relationship with God, but truly I don't know Christ. Paul reminds us here that our present demands commitment. What is that commitment? To know Christ. It's not just to say, Paul's not saying, you know, there's one thing I need you to do, and that's attend every local church that you can. Or I'm not telling you there's one thing you need to do, and that's give 10% every single Sunday morning. Or there's one thing I want you to do, and that's to help at Vacation Bible School whenever we have it. And these are just things that now, I mean, I imagine they didn't have Vacation Bible School back then. But you get my point. Paul's telling them there's one thing you can do, and that's know Christ. Because we can say we have it all figured out, but if we don't know him personally, then one, well, two, three, four, and five, we don't know Jesus Christ. And without knowing him, our faith is found on sand and it's not found on the rock, which Josiah talked about last week. Last week is how we can say we got it all figured out, but unless we truly know Christ Jesus and he is our personal savior and we have a relationship with him daily, then we don't really have it all figured out. You know, we talk about is living for Jesus worth it? It is. But we aren't going to really live for Jesus if we don't know him. Because then we can just say, man, I'm going to do this. But whenever bad times come, then whenever the fact that we don't know Christ and he's not our firm reason for why we do everything, then we're not going to live for him. I think about as I was preparing for what I thought was going to be my sermon, James 2, we talk about, you know, works and faith, whatever, like the whole battle, you know, can you have faith without works or works without faith, yada, yada, yada. Well, as I was preparing for that, I was reminded of this a few weeks ago in my Bible class, we were talking about knowing Christ. 
And I told the students, I said, you know, a lot of times we can face, place our focuses on, you know, what do I have to do to earn the love of God? You know, like, and you think, like, man, I don't, I don't believe that. Well, I'll ask you a question. Imagine there's two scenarios, okay? One morning, you wake up. You wake up really good early before work. You read your Bible. You pray. You go to work. You just feel the Holy Spirit working in your life. You, you pray at lunch. You go home. You have a great time in the car. You have a time where you're alone in the car and you're able to focus on the Lord. You have an awesome day because you started the morning with your prayer and Bible reading. Okay? Now, let's think about that day. Now, let's think about the other day where you wake up and you think you, you wake up a little late. So you maybe wake up a little late, a little groggy. You don't get your breakfast in. You don't read your Bible. You don't pray. So then you go to work and it's like, man, everything's just really getting under your skin that day. You get to lunch and maybe lunch just tastes horrible because you've had a bad day. Then you go home and there's traffic. You have to sit in traffic because there's a wreck or you have to wait at a railroad track. And you go through your day and then you're really not feeling the spirit. Which of those two days would you say that the Lord loves you more? And I think a lot of times we think, well, of course it's the day where I was spending my time with him. Is it really? Because his love's not determined on what we do for him, because if that's the case, he would have never loved us in the first place because we were all born sinners. In fact, it's found in who he is. So then why do I say that? Because if we don't know who he is, then we're not going to live out for him. A lot of times I think that we live out our lives like I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this for God and I'm going to do this for God and I'm going to do this for God and then God's going to love me. But instead, we should look at God loves me and I know him. And because I know him now, I want to do this for him, not out of my love for him or because I want him to love me, but because I love him so much because of what he has done for me. And that produces our actions. You see, all this comes from not just saying we know about God, but rather saying that we know God personally. So first, why is living for Christ worth it? Well, because our past is not. Also, because our present time right now, we need to know him. Lastly, why is living for Christ worth it? It's because our future is worth pursuing. You see, we should forget the things of the past and look forward to those things of the future. And one of the ways that I believe Paul shows us that we can press towards the future is by living in a state of dissatisfaction. You're like, what? That's dissatisfaction? Like, in, in what? Well, not dissatisfaction in the fact that we're not satisfied in Christ, but rather in the fact that we're not satisfied with our current state. You see, we can look around, and I believe that Paul could have looked around and said, you know what, I've really, I've had some missionary journeys, I've gone to prison, but I've still got that joy, and I've got this figured out. I'm like, the, now I'm one of the, we pin Paul as like one of the greatest missionaries of all time. And he could look around and say, yeah, I might not be, you know, the greatest, but I've got it better than all these people. And I'm a lot closer to Jesus than they are. But instead, Paul looks at Jesus and realizes that, man, I've got it a long way to go. So I'm not saying we're dissatisfied in the fact of, you know, not satisfied in what Jesus did for us. Rather, we're dissatisfied in our current state. And we realize, man, I'm not going to compare myself to those around me because truthfully, I might have it better than these people or I might not have better than these people, but that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Our goal is not to be better than those around us. Our goal is to live more like Christ. And so we look at Christ and realize that I've got a long way to go, but praise the Lord that he has given us our spirit that helps us grow in his image. So we look forward to the future. We realize that we are dissatisfied with where we are now and our direction is to press towards Christ. We aren't depressed towards fame, money, success, but one thing, 
and that is Christ. We press towards Jesus Christ. Christ is our goal. He is our source. Ultimately, he is our everything. And if he is not real to you tonight, then we are just out here living life amidst on living on action and not trying to truly grow towards Christ. I want to ask one question and then I'll be done. Well, kind of. I used to get, people used to tell me, like, Chance, you know, you're not really a preacher yet because you said you were going to be done in two minutes and then you were done in two minutes. So I'm going to work on lying to you, apparently, <laughs> so then I can be a preacher. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Here's the question, though. What one change could you make in order to pursue the one thing that matters most? And I didn't actually write that. A guy by the name of C.J. Mahaney found it or said it. But I think we could apply it tonight. What one change could you make tonight that would matter the most. And to pursue the one thing that matters the most, which is Christ. Now, I referenced at the very beginning of this message that last week we were at that um, the Single Vision Conference and Pastor Kenny Baldwin, he was preaching. Well, there was one thing that he talked about that really hit me like in my gut because he was talking about knowing Christ and how Jesus changes everything. And I was able to look back over my life and just praise the Lord for how he has worked in my life, my family's life. Ultimately, we could even say, you know, let's take this off of me and look at the church, like how he's worked through faith church and how he has blessed us in the past. And, you know, we can praise him for it, but not get stuck up in it. But the one thing that I thought about, he was talking and he said, you know, a lot of times I find that us as Christians, we're really good at identifying that one area that we need to work on. You know, it's like, man, I've got my Bible reading figured out, but I really need to work on praying. Or, you know, I've, I'm really living for the Lord, but there's this one distraction that I just cannot get out of my life right now that is just really taking me away from God. He said, you know, we're really good at identifying what it is that takes us away from God. He said, but we're really not good at actually working on it. He said, you know, a lot of Christians, they'll get to this point where it's like, man, I really need to work on blank. But hey, I know I need to work on it and I'll get to it eventually. You know, I've identified that that's my thing, but I'm not taking the steps towards actually allowing Christ to move in my life and work towards it. And tonight I ask you, what is that one thing? What is that one thing that is stopping you from pursuing Christ fully? You know, what one change? What is that one thing? What one change could you make in order to pursue the one thing that matters the most, which is Christ? And I think a lot of, I mean, I can even think of a few right now in my own life that I need to work on. But am I just going to stop there? Am I just going to think, you know what? You're right. God, I realize that this is where I need to work on, but I'm just realizing it. I'm not doing anything about it. Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this question again, and I want you to think, I'm not just going to notice it. I'm actually going to work on it. How do you work on it? I think we talked about it a few minutes ago. Just know him. Work on knowing him more each and every day. I was watching NC State play volleyball last night, and they kept saying every play day wants to be 1% better. You know, 1% better, 1% better. Well, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow wanting to know Christ and then being like the great evangelist of the world. That's just not how it works. But if I slowly, through a day by day, just get to know him a little bit more and then a little bit more and a little bit more, a lot's going to happen over a course of three or four years, maybe 10 years. So it's not going to happen overnight. But we got to work on knowing him more. So what is that one thing in your life right now that you know you need to work on most to pursue Christ.